Chapter Seventeen of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Adam Bede by George Eliot. Chapter Seventeen, in which the story pauses a little. This rector of Broxton is little better than a pagan. I hear one of my readers exclaim. How much more edifying it would have been if you had made him give Arthur some truly spiritual advice. You might have put into his mouth the most beautiful things, quite as good as reading a sermon. Certainly I could, if I held it the highest vocation of the novelist to represent things as they never have been and never will be. Then, of course, I might refashion life and character entirely after my own liking. I might select the most unexceptionable type of clergyman, and put my own admirable opinions into his mouth on all occasions. But it happens, on the contrary, that my strongest effort is to avoid any such arbitrary picture, and to give a faithful account of men and things as they have mirrored themselves in my mind. The mirror is doubtless defective, the outlines will sometimes be disturbed, the reflection faint or confused, but I feel as much bound to tell you as precisely as I can what that reflection is as if I were in the witness-box, narrating my experience on oath. Sixty years ago—it is a long time, so no wonder things have changed—all clergymen were not zealous. Indeed, there is reason to believe that the number of zealous clergymen was small, and it is probable that if one among the small minority had owned the livings of Broxton and Hayslope in the year 1799, you would have liked him no better than you like Mr. Irwin. Ten to one you would have thought him a tasteless, indiscreet, methodistical man. It is so very rarely that facts hit that nice medium required by our own enlightened opinions and refined taste. Perhaps you will say, do improve the facts a little, then. Make them more accordant with those correct views which it is our privilege to possess. The world is not just what we like. Do touch it up with a tasteful pencil, and make believe it is not quite such a mixed and tangled affair. Let all people who hold unexceptionable opinions act unexceptionably. Let your most faulty characters always be on the wrong side, and your virtuous ones on the right. Then we shall see at a glance whom we are to condemn and whom we are to approve. Then we shall be able to admire, without the slightest disturbance of our prepossessions. We shall hate and despise with that true ruminant relish which belongs to undoubting confidence. But, my good friend, what will you do then with your fellow parishioner who opposes your husband in the vestry? with your newly appointed vicar, whose style of preaching you find painfully below that of his regretted predecessor, with the honest servant who worries your soul with her one failing, with your neighbor, Mrs. Green, who was really kind to you in your last illness, but has said several ill-natured things about you since your convalescence, nay, with your excellent husband himself, who has other irritating habits beside that of not wiping his shoes. These fellow-mortals, every one, must be accepted as they are, you can neither straighten their noses, nor brighten their wit, nor rectify their dispositions, and it is these people, amongst whom your life is passed, that it is needful you should tolerate, pity, and love. It is these more or less ugly, stupid, inconsistent people whose movements of goodness you should be able to admire, for whom you should cherish all possible hopes, all possible patience. And I would not, even if I had the choice, be the clever novelist who could create a world so much better than this in which we get up in the morning to do our daily work, that you would be likely to turn a harder, colder eye on the dusty streets and the common green fields, on the real breathing men and women, who can be chilled by your indifference or injured by your prejudice, 
who can be cheered and helped onward by your fellow-feeling, your forbearance, your outspoken, brave justice. So I am content to tell my simple story, without trying to make things seem better than they were, dreading nothing, indeed, but falsity, which, in spite of one's best efforts, there is reason to dread. Falsehood is so easy, truth so difficult. The pencil is conscious of a delightful facility in drawing a griffin. The longer the claws, and the larger the wings, the better. But that marvellous facility which we mistook for genius is apt to forsake us when we want to draw a real, unexaggerated lion. Examine your words well, and you will find that even when you have no motive to be false, it is a hard thing to say the exact truth, even about your own immediate feelings, much harder than to say something fine about them which is not the exact truth. It is for this rare, precious quality of truthfulness that I delight in many Dutch paintings, which lofty-minded people despise. I find a source of delicious sympathy in these faithful pictures of a monotonous homely existence which has been the fate of so many more among my fellow-mortals than a life of pomp or of absolute indigence, of tragic suffering or of world-stirring actions. I turn without shrinking from cloud-born angels, from prophets, sibyls, and heroic warriors, to an old woman bending over her flower-pot, or eating her solitary dinner, while the noonday light, softened perhaps by a screen of leaves, falls on her mob-cap and just touches the rim of her spinning-wheel, and her stone-jug, and all those cheap common things which are the precious necessaries of life to her. Or I turn to that village wedding, kept between four brown walls, where an awkward bridegroom opens the dance with a high-shouldered, broad-faced bride, while elderly and middle-aged friends look on, with very irregular noses and lips, and probably with quart-pots in their hands, but with an expression of unmistakable contentment and good-will. Foe, says my idealistic friend, what vulgar details! What good is there in taking all these pains to give an exact likeness of old women and clowns? What a low phase of life! What clumsy, ugly people! But, bless us, things may be lovable that are not altogether handsome, I hope. I am not at all sure that the majority of the human race have not been ugly, and even among those lords of their kind, the British, squat figures, ill-shapen nostrils, and dingy complexions, are not startling exceptions. Yet there is a great deal of family love amongst us. I have a friend or two whose class of features is such that the Apollo curl on the summit of their brows would be decidedly trying, yet to my certain knowledge tender hearts have beaten for them, and their miniatures, flattering but still not lovely, are kissed in secret by motherly lips. I have seen many an excellent matron, who could have never in her best days have been handsome, and yet she had a packet of yellow love-letters in a private drawer and sweet children showered kisses on her sallow cheeks. And I believe there have been plenty of young heroes, of middle stature and feeble beards, who have felt quite sure they could never love anything more insignificant than a Diana, and yet have found themselves in middle life happily settled with a wife who waddles. Yes, thank God, human feeling is like the mighty rivers that bless the earth. It does not wait for beauty. It flows with resistless force and brings beauty with it. All honor and reverence to the divine beauty of form. Let us cultivate it to the utmost in men, women, and children, in our gardens and in our houses. But let us love that other beauty, too, which lies in no secret of proportion, but in the secret of deep human sympathy. Paint us an angel, if you can, with a floating violet robe and a face paled by the celestial light. Paint us yet oftener a Madonna, turning her mild face upward and opening her arms to welcome the divine glory. But do not impose on us any aesthetic rules which shall banish from the region of art those old women scraping carrots with their work-worn hands, those heavy clowns taking holiday in a dingy pothouse, 
those rounded backs and stupid weather-beaten faces that have bent over the spade and done the rough work of the world those homes with their tin-pans their brown pitchers their rough curs and their clusters of onions in this world there are so many of these common coarse people who have no picturesque sentimental wretchedness it is so needful we should remember their existence else we may happen to leave them quite out of our religion and philosophy and frame lofty theories which only fit a world of extremes therefore let art always remind us of them therefore let us always have men ready to give the loving pains of a life to the faithful representing of commonplace things men who see beauty in these commonplace things and delight in showing how kindly the light of heaven falls on them there are few prophets in the world few sublimely beautiful women few heroes I can't afford to give all my love and reverence to such rarities. I want a great deal of those feelings for my everyday fellow-men, especially for the few in the foreground of the great multitude, whose faces I know, whose hands I touch, for whom I have to make way with kindly courtesy. Neither are picturesque lazzaroni or romantic criminals half so frequent as your common laborer, who gets his own bread and eats it vulgarly, but creditably, with his own pocket-knife. It is more needful that I should have a fibre of sympathy connecting me with that vulgar citizen who weighs out my sugar in a vilely assorted cravat and waistcoat, than with the handsomest rascal in red scarf and green feathers. More needful that my heart should swell with loving admiration at some trait of gentle goodness in the faulty people who sit at the same hearth with me, or in the clergyman of my own parish, who is perhaps rather too corpulent and in other respects is not an Oberlin or a Tillotson, than at the deeds of heroes whom I shall never know except by hearsay, or at the sublimest abstract of all clerical graces that was ever conceived by an able novelist. And so I come back to Mr. Irwin, with whom I desire you to be in perfect charity, far as he may be from satisfying your demands on the clerical character. Perhaps you think he was not, as he ought to have been, a living demonstration of the benefits attached to a national church. But I am not sure of that, at least I know that the people in Broxton and Hayslip would have been very sorry to part with their clergyman, and that most faces brightened at his approach, and until it can be proved that hatred is a better thing for the soul than love, I must believe that Mr. Irwin's influence in his parish was a more wholesome one than that of the zealous Mr. Ride, who came here twenty years afterwards, when Mr. Irwin had been gathered to his father's. It is true Mr. Ride insisted strongly on the doctrines of the Reformation, visited his flock a great deal in their own homes, and was severe in rebuking the aberrations of the flesh, put a stop, indeed, to the Christmas rounds of the church singers as promoting drunkenness and too light a handling of sacred things. But I gathered from Adam Bede, to whom I talked of these matters in his old age, that few clergymen could be less successful in winning the hearts of their parishioners than Mr. Ride. They learned a great many notions about doctrine from him, so that almost every church-goer under fifty began to distinguish as well between the genuine gospel and what did not come precisely up to that standard, as if he had been born and bred a dissenter, and for some time after his arrival there seemed to be quite a religious movement in that quiet rural district. But, said Adam, I've seen pretty clear ever since I was a young'un, as religion's something else besides notions. It isn't notions that's people doing the right thing, it's feelings. It's the same with the notions in religion as it is with mathematics. A man may be able to work problems straight off in his head as he sits by the fire and smokes his pipe, but if he has to make a machine or a building, he must have a will and a resolution and love something else better than his own ease. Somehow the congregation began to fall off, and people began to speak light of Mr. Ride. I believe he meant right at bottom, 
but you see he was sourish tempered and was for beating down prices with the people as worked for him and his preaching wouldn't go down well with that sauce and he wanted to be like my lord judge of the parish punishing folks for doing wrong and he scolded him for the pulpit as if he'd been a ranter and yet he couldn't abide the dissenters and was a deal more set against em than mr irwin was and then he didn't keep within his income, for he seemed to think at first go-off that six hundred a year was to make him as big a man as Mr. Donathorne. That's a sore mischief I've often seen with the poor curates jumping into a bit of living all of a sudden. Mr. Ride was a deal thought on at a distance, I believe, and he wrote books, but as for mathematics and the nature of things, he was as ignorant as a woman. He was very knowing about doctrines, and used to call them the bulwarks of the Reformation— but I've always mistrusted that sort of learning as leaves folks foolish and unreasonable about business. Now Mr. Irwin was as different as could be, as quick. He understood what you meant in a minute, and he knew all about building, and could see when you'd made a good job. And he behaved as much like a gentleman to the farmers, and the old women, and the laborers, as he did to the gentry. We never saw him interfering and scolding and trying to play the emperor. Ah, he was a fine man as ever you set eyes on, and so kind to his mother and sisters that poor sickly miss anne he seemed to think more of her than of anybody else in the world there wasn't a soul in the parish had a word to say against him and his servants stayed with him till they were so old and pottering he had to hire other folks to do their work well i said that was an excellent way of preaching in the weekdays but i dare say if your old friend mr irwin were to come to life again and get into the pulpit next sunday you wouldn't be rather ashamed that he didn't preach better after all your praise of him "'Nay, nay,' said Adam, broadening his chest and throwing himself back in his chair, as if he were ready to meet all inferences. "'Nobody has ever heard me say Mr. Irwin was much of a preacher. He didn't go into deep spiritual experience, and I know there's a deal in a man's inward life as you can't measure by the square and say, "'Do this, and that'll follow, and do that, and this'll follow. There's things go on in the soul, and times when feelings come into you like a rushing mighty wind, as the scripture says, and part your life in two almost.' so you look back on yourself as if you were somebody else. Those are things that you can't bottle up in a do-this-and-do-that, and I'll go so far with the strongest Methodist ever you'll find. That shows me there's deep spiritual things in religion. You can't make much out with talking about it, but you feel it. Mr. Irwin didn't go into those things. He preached short, moral sermons, and that was all. But then he acted pretty much up to what he said. He didn't set up for being so different from other folks one day, and then be as like him as two peas the next. And he made folks love him and respect him, and that was better nor stirring up their gall with being over-busy. Mrs. Poyser used to say, you know, she would have her word about everything. She said, Mr. Irwin was like a good meal of victual. You were the better for him without thinking on it. And Mr. Ride was like a dose of physic. He gripped you and warded you, and after all he left you much the same. "'But didn't Mr. Ride preach a great deal more about the spiritual part of religion that you talk of, Adam? Couldn't you get more out of his sermons than out of Mr. Irwin's?' "'Eh, I know no. He preached a deal about doctrines, but I've seen pretty clear ever since I was a young un as religion's something else besides doctrines and notions. I look at it as if the doctrines was like finding names for your feelings, so as you can talk of em when you've never known em, just as a man may talk tools when he knows their names, though he's never so much as seen em still less handle them. I've heard a deal of doctrine in my time, for I used to go after the dissenting preachers along with Seth, when I was a lad of seventeen, and got puzzling myself a deal about the Arminians and the Calvinists, 
the wesleyans you know are strong arminians and seth who could never abide anything harsh and was always for hoping the best held fast by the wesleyans from the very first but i thought i could pick a hole or two in their notions and i got disputing with one of the class leaders down at treddleson and harassed him so first to this side then to that till at last he said young man it's the devil making use of your pride and conceit as a weapon to war against the simplicity of truth i couldn't help laughing then but as i was going home i thought the man wasn't far wrong i began to see as all this weighing and sifting what this text means and that text means and whether folks are saved all by god's grace or whether there goes an ounce of their own will to it was no part of real religion at all you may talk of these things for hours on end and you'll only be all the more coxy and conceited for it so i took to going nowhere but to church and hearing nobody but mr irwin for he said nothing but what was good and what should be the wiser for remembering and i found it better for my soul to be humble before the mysteries of god's dealings and not be making a clatter about what i could never understand and they're poor foolish questions after all for what have we got either inside or outside of us but what comes from god if we got a resolution to do right he gave it us i reckon first or last but i see plain enough we shall never do it without a resolution and that's enough for me adam you perceive was a warm admirer perhaps a partial judge of mr irwin as happily some of us still are of the people we have known familiarly doubtless it will be despised as a weakness by that lofty order of minds who pant after the ideal and are oppressed by a general sense that their emotions are of too exquisite a character to find fit objects among their everyday fellowmen i have often been favoured with the confidence of these select natures and find them to concur in the experience that great men are overestimated and small men are insupportable that if you would love a woman without ever looking back on your love as a folly she must die when you are courting her and if you would maintain the slightest belief in human heroism you must never make a pilgrimage to see the hero i confess i have often meanly shrunk from confessing to these accomplished and acute gentlemen what my own experience has been i am afraid i have often smiled with hypocritical assent and gratified them with an epigram on the fleeting nature of our illusions which any one moderately acquainted with french literature can command at a moment's notice human converse i think some wise man has remarked is not rigidly sincere but i herewith discharge my conscience and declare that i have had quite enthusiastic movements of admiration towards old gentlemen who spoke the worst english who were occasionally fretful in their temper and who had never moved in a higher sphere of influence than that of parish overseer and that the way in which i have come to the conclusion that human nature is lovable the way i have learned something of its deep pathos its sublime mysteries has been by living a great deal among people more or less commonplace and vulgar of whom you would perhaps hear nothing very surprising if you were to inquire about them in the neighbourhoods where they dwelt ten to one most of the small shopkeepers in their vicinity saw nothing at all in them for i have observed this remarkable coincidence that the select natures who pant after the ideal and find nothing in pantaloons or petticoats great enough to command the reverence and love are curiously in unison with the narrowest and pettiest for example i have often heard mr gedge the landlord of the royal oak who used to turn a bloodshot eye on his neighbours in the village of shepperton sum up his opinion of the people in his own parish and they were all the people he knew in these emphatic words ay sir i've said it often and i'll say it again they're a poor lot of this parish a poor lot sir big and little i think he had a dim idea that if he could migrate to a distant parish he might find neighbours worthy of him and indeed he did subsequently transfer himself to the saracen's head 
which was doing a thriving business in the back street of a neighboring market town. But oddly enough, he has found the people up that back street of precisely the same stamp as the inhabitants of Shepperton. A poor lot, sir, big and little. And them as comes for a go of gin are no better than them as comes for a pint of twopenny. A poor lot. End of chapter 17